Peter explains to us our identity in Christ, that we are chosen before time in Christ. Amazing as that is, just to start with. But then Peter takes it further on, he explains what the repercussions of that are. We are called to be a holy people, set apart for him. He chose us for that. And then out of that, he makes us realise that we are called to be a holy people together, not just a bunch of holy individuals spread across the earth. We are his corporate people. And then he starts taking it further and further on into practicalities of everyday life. Your position in life, and then on, as we'll be hearing in future weeks, about marriage and so on and so forth. So this week we've come to chapter 2, as you should see already up there. Second half of chapter 2, from verse 13 through to 25. And Peter presents a case here in this passage. I think it's it's an amazing case. He presents it just as cleverly as Paul does. When you read through Paul's letters, he presents a case just so well. He'd have made a great lawyer, wouldn't he? You know, there's this, this and this, and then he almost goes off on a, on a branch and goes off on this side subject, but then he brings it back and brings it back full circle and says, now do you get what I'm talking about? And Peter does the same here, just this morning. It's quite clearly inspired by the Holy Spirit. In just a few sentences, Peter takes us from what is ultimately a surface issue, honouring the authorities, honouring all. He takes that. It's almost like an iceberg, is a way I've tried to describe it. Because it was on the scr- scratching on the surface, you see this, what is it? I can't remember how much of an iceberg is seen above the water. It's a limited percentage, isn't it? And that's the surface issue of honouring all, which you think is quite a big subject. As Christians, we should honour all. And it's almost like you'd expect Peter to go, so off you go. But you know, he makes us realise that there's far greater stuff at stake underneath this. He plunges us, plunges us below the surface to see what's going on underneath, which is about suffering well, not a fun subject, not one we like to dwell on too much, but he takes us below the surface to look at suffering and our response to that. And then he takes us even deeper to Jesus on the cross and Jesus, his life of suffering as well. Jesus as our perfect example. He takes us deeper and deeper and deeper and then by inference back again. So now do you realise why you need to honour everyone? It's a brilliant case. It's fantastic. I've loved digging deeper into this over the past few weeks. So let me just pray. And then we'll start reading. Lord Jesus, just ask for your help this morning. Not just for me, but for each one of us. May we receive from you what it is you want to say to us here this morning in Herne Bay at the end of January 2010. Lord, you have something to speak to each one of us this morning. May you do so. Use me, Lord, but it's not about my words, it's yours, Lord. Teach me. Thank you, Lord. So let's read. We're going to read it in three sections and dwell on them as we come to them each time. So first of all, we're going to read from verse 13 through to verse 17. Here we go. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men. But do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honour the king. Here's the surface issue. Honouring the authorities. Peter's letter throughout exhorts us to, to be good citizens, to be good servants, to be good husbands and wives, and so on. But note here, he starts right at the top of the list. Honour the emperor. Remember who this emperor is. It's always been re- already been revealed to us over the past couple of weeks about Nero, and I'll remind you of some of the details later on. Nero was not the nicest of guys. 
Yet straight away, Peter goes straight to the top and says, honour the emperor, honour the king, is the word used here in the NIV. But notice he's not, he's not demanding all Christians seek to overthrow the despot. He's not asking us to live as the Jews have been waiting for their great Messiah to come for thousands of years, or hundreds of years, since he was prophesied, and they, can't, they missed the point. So many of them missed the point that Jesus had already come. They were waiting for this great king who would come ready, ready to overthrow the authorities. They missed the point that Jesus had already been and gone. So Peter's not saying, you Christians, now you're free, you need to overthrow the authorities. He's saying, no, straight at the top, no matter who that emperor is, you need to be subject to them, you need to honour them, you need to hold them in high respect. Sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? When you don't think they deserve it. But then, if he's telling us to submit to the guy at the top, he's telling us to submit to everyone in between as well. For us, if he's telling us to submit to the Prime Minister, he's talking about all the MPs, all the councillors, our employers, and so on and so forth. He starts right at the top, so then it goes without saying that we honour everyone else who filters down below that. But I mean, notice how he mentions the King's governors, verse 14. He describes the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Do you think Nero's governors did that? I pretty much doubt it. And in fact, in Acts 24, we read about a governor called Felix, who was quite clearly corrupt, and he kept Paul unjustly in prison for a lot longer than he should have done, just because he wanted to appease certain parties. He was a very corrupt governor. Yet Paul tells Christians to submit to and honour the governors. It's a tough call. I mean, for us, we may have, we do sometimes have corrupt MPs, corrupt councillors. Do we submit and honour them? Well, yeah. Unfortunately. Hard sometimes, isn't it? You don't think they deserve it. It doesn't mean we don't call for justice through the right channels. God's word isn't saying that. It doesn't, seem we, doesn't mean we don't call for their resignation and sack when it's appropriate. We do have the ability to do that. But he's also saying we don't dishonour them in the process or randomly break their laws in a tit-for-tat manner, which I come across some people who do quite happily because the MPs fiddle their taxes, so why can't I? It's not what he's saying here. He said, don't dishonour them in the process. But I mean, why? To, to many, to some, sometimes to us, this can seem like naivety, that cloud cuckoo land. It's like living in a utopia. Yeah, honour everyone. That's what the Bible says. Be nice all the time. But it's, no, it's, it's much more than that. This is about honouring God at the end of the day. Peter is not saying submit to specific laws. He's not listing laws that, that the emperor has put in place and we need to submit to. He's going straight to submit to the authority or the human institutions that have put those laws in place. He cuts right to the core. Paul himself explains in Romans chapter 13, in the very first verse, there's a verse you've all heard before, but he says, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So we need to honour that. We are called to honour God. We need to honour the authorities that he has established. Whether we agree with them or not, whether they are right or not, whether they are good or evil, we need to honour them. Because God's put them there for a reason. This is a call to honour all, so our lives advertise and glorify Christ within us. It's a tough call, it's not easy. But the reason is, it's about honouring God, but also there is a result to it. The will of God is, in verse 15, for it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. 
there's a result to it at all. Silence, ignorant talk, the word silence is talking about muzzling, as in muzzling, yelping dogs. It's true, that's what he's saying. For example, Daniel chapter 1. Daniel and his buddies have been held in captivity in a foreign land with an evil king and they were chosen for um, being educated and raised over a few years to then be presented to the king. He was trying to infect the Jewish people with Babylonian ways, Babylonian traditions and trying to kind of win them over, trying to break down the Jewish culture that way. But Daniel disobeyed the laws regarding the dietary regulations. He said, no, I will not eat the king's food. This is more than just standing in principle. It was also he wanted to resist the temptation of Babylonian luxury and also there was a possibility some of this food could have been offered to idols and he just wanted to keep his conscience clean as well. But he didn't say no and just refused to not provide some means of helping, of honouring the guy who was asking him to do this as well. What he also did was say, no, just feed us vegetables. King doesn't need to know about it. Feed us vegetables. God will honour this. Trust us and see what happens. We won't look pale and warm and the king will want to know what's up and get you in trouble. He didn't dishonour the authorities. He also submitted to them as well. But in this attitude, he ended up silencing and muzzling the foolish men. He still glorified God. He still disobeyed the law regarding the dietary regulations, but he did it in an honourable way. Do you see the difference? Acts chapter 5. Julia mentioned it last week. Peter and the other apostles are flogged and beaten, ordered not to preach the name of Christ again. They continued. (laughs) Hallelujah. But they didn't start a rebellion. They didn't go straight out in the streets and say, you wouldn't believe what they've told us to do and start a riot. They just continued preaching, but they did it in an honourable way. Two different things. So for us today as well, as then, we're expected to honour all in authority over us, despite any corruption or fallibility they might have. Sometimes they do, unfortunately. But we are still called to obey the laws of the land and not fight back with an equal kind of every man for his own heart. How do we maintain that heart? Verses 15, verse 16, here it is. This is the key to this. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Live as free men. This is not about absolute freedom. Tertullian is the great, uh, one of the great church fathers of the second century. And he said this. He was talking about the doctrine of justification, which is... It, it's essentially the core of the gospel, basically, our standing in Christ when we are saved. And he's saying, just as Christ was crucified between two thieves, the doctrine of justification, the core of the gospel, is crucified between two opposite errors. And he describes them as legalism and antinomianism. Antinomianism is just from the Greek for anti-law, against the law. So on one extreme, you've got the law. On the other, you've got anti-law. And he's saying the gospel is just crucified between the two of these. Because on the legalism side, you've got, I must do this to be right before God. I screwed up yesterday. I sinned this morning and I've got to make up for it by doing more good works. Or I've got to do this or I don't have enough quiet times. And and I I, I had a whole week last week when I didn't really read my Bible, so I need to read it twice as much this week to be right before God. It's just this whole rule system. You're just building up credits before God. It doesn't work like that. Anything you say or do, whatever you do, whatever you don't do, doesn't change what God thinks about you. That's the gospel. But then on the other side, you've got the huge, great, ridiculous, knee-jerk reaction, antinomianism, anti-law, where it says we're free under grace. It doesn't matter now. The law doesn't mean anything to me now. I'm free under grace to do what I like. I'm saved. God always thinks the same with me, so I can do what I want. No, that's not the gospel either. 
The gospel says you are free under grace. God loves you despite what you're like and you can't make up for that in your actions. You can't change that. You can't make yourself more worthy in front of him. That's not what the gospel says. But you are still called to live an honourable life because of that. Because otherwise you dishonour the gospel. So we are free to submit. Does that make sense? We are free in Christ to obey the authorities. It's two different things. Very, very different. Just because some MPs fiddle their taxes or their expenses, we've been hearing about that, haven't we? Some may or may not lie about the Iraq invasion and so on. We don't fight back tit for tat. Well, that's what they're like, so why should I treat them any differently? No matter how much it disgruntles, we should submit an honour. doesn't matter what it is, everyday life, speed limits. I know I've got a bit of a get-out clause in my blue lights, haven't I? But, uh, <laughs> I'm all right on that one. Not every day. But we don't steal stationery from work. There's only a couple of reams of paper and they've got loads, <coughs> in the, loads on the shelves. Another box of biros. No, it's still stealing, isn't it? Making phone calls from work to, uh, to just personal phone calls from work at home when it's not work-related. Still stealing, isn't it? Use your mobile phone in your break. <coughs> but not paying by cash so you can save on VAT. That's still wrong. The look on people's faces when I go into like buying electrical goods or you know, down the old electrical supply shop, get some wire or some boxes or something, and they're like, oh, you, you pay cash, you save on that. I said, no thanks, I want to pay the full amount. They're like, what do you mean? You want to save money? No, I'd like to pay the full amount, please, I'll do it on my card. They don't get it, but I want to honour the authorities, and in so doing, I'm honouring God who put them there. Do you see the difference? I've done my tax return recently. <coughs> Pay as you were, and makes life a lot easier, but I have to do a little tax return. But part of that is it asks me to declare any shares dividends I've earned over the years. Now, I worked for Smiths 20 years ago, and the shares I got there, I get some dividends. Every six months, I get about £1.35. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> It goes on a packet of crisps and a finger of fudge. That's what I want to get. But I still declare those share dividends. Sometimes I have a real hard time trying to find those receipts. But now I'm going to find those because I want to declare what I've earned. To the best of my knowledge, I'm going to put what's on there is what I earn. It's only one The government won't mind. It's not the point. I want to do it honourably. It's a big difference, do you see? Just in the workplace, for example, Lillian Liddell, I don't know if you've heard about her over the past couple of years. She's a Christian from uh, Islington Council. She's a registrar, works at Islington Council, or worked. And uh, she asked, respectfully, to not be involved in homosexual civil partnerships, being involved in those ceremonies. And she was bullied and threatened with a sack because of it. It went to court, big time, it ended up in the national press. She won, finally. God, thank God. But it's gone to appeal now, so of course the authorities are now appealing against her decision to have won that case. This is the kind of thing that people are finding more and more. No, so ethically, my faith doesn't stand with being involved in this kind of civil partnership. I'd rather not be involved. Well, you have to. How do you deal with that? But you have to deal with it in an honourable way. Doctors, theatre staff are at the moment allowed to opt out of terminations, of abortions, on ethical grounds. And so many are doing it now, they're running out of doctors and nurses to do them. Because there is an increasing demand for abortions, and more and more staff are saying, don't want to do it. Which I think is a great thing, but there's going to come a point, I think, in the next few years, 
when someone in authority is going to make a decision about how to deal with that problem. And more and more Christians are going to face a big issue with, I can't do my job anymore. Difficult. But these are the kind of things we're facing these days. But we have to submit and honour. If you need to seek change, seek change, but through the honourable means. Not honouring the authorities brings dishonour to the, cross, to the gospel. The gospel loses credibility as soon as we do that. So there's a the surface issue, submitting to the authorities. But then straight away, Peter plunges us below the surface, suffering well. The lovely subject. Here we go, verse 18 through to 20. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Are there any slaves here? Didn't think so. Okay, so okay. what can we learn from this? What can we draw from this? Peter is stressing to the slaves that though they are saved, saved slaves, it did not give them veto to announce their own political freedom. If you're like, right, I'm a Christian now, I'm free. Pack my things, sorry boss, got to go. doesn't work like that. In fact, Paul himself had to deal with this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he's saying, guys, if you're slaves, don't run out and you're, you're going to dishonour the authority if you decide you're free and you're no longer meant to be there. That is your station in life. God has put you there. If he wants to change it, he will change it. In the meantime, you honour that position in life that God has given you. It's exactly the same thing. And all of us, we all have a God-given station in life, don't we? Wherever it might be. Whether we like it or not as well. The gospel, note this, did not... The gospel itself did not bring an end to the Roman Empire or slavery by the Christians working against it from inside. God naturally brought an end to the Roman Empire and slavery, naturally by the gospel, in his own way and his own timing. But the early church still honoured those institutions all the way through. Again, see the difference. So clearly the message for us is understanding suffering and our position in life, even if we're not slaves. But notice, about position in life, if you're always comparing yourself with other people, you will always, always end up either full of pride or full of jealousy. Don't go comparing yourself with other people. Don't compare.com. <laughs> not go compare. Don't compare.com. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Who likes suffering? Must be someone here. Really? Good grief. You do surprise me. Of course not. And the believers in Rome, Peter was one of them when he wrote this letter. The believers in Rome were about to find out. Remember Nero, this emperor I said. But Peter says we are called, or they were called to honour and to submit to. Remember what he was like. He was declared emperor at the age of 17 after his mother had his adopted father poisoned. During his, uh, I can't remember how many years he was, uh, 14 years he was in, in power until his, his own suicide in 31. Shows how screwed up he was. He became increasingly paranoid during that reign. He ended up having his mum killed. <laughs> Payback. He had his stepbrother killed. He had his first wife killed. He had his, uh, his uh, main counsellor forced to commit suicide. Increasingly paranoid. And when in AD 64, about one or two years after Peter wrote this letter, 
A huge fire broke out in Rome, destroyed 10 out of the 14 districts of Rome. Nero blamed the Christians. And the persecution that broke out, the church has seen nothing like it since when they first started. Some Christians were crucified. Some Christians were set alight alive at night to act as torches. Some were sewn into animal skins and fed to dogs. Sick, sick, sick. Babylon, uh, sorry, Rome became known as Babylon. Rome became so depraved and so, so notorious for its anti-Christian power, it became synonymous with Babylon that had been thousands of years, hundreds of years before. And even at the end of Peter's letter, 1 Peter chapter 5, he uses that word Babylon. He says, she who is in Babylon sends her greetings. He's talking about Rome. He's in Rome at the time, calls it Babylon. That's how it became then. And that persecution broke out. Peter himself was crucified there and then at the same time, just a couple of years after writing this letter. He asked to be crucified upside down because he didn't want to dishonour his saviour. <laughs> what a guy. <laughs> amazing, amazing. And now this letter isn't specifically about physical suffering. This is about being treated unjustly and unfairly. But just being called names and harassed can often lead to physical beatings, can't it, as we often see around the world even today. It's the same thing. Our lives and how we respond to that are meant to advertise the gospel. That's what we're called to do. It's easy to honour all. It's easy to honour the emperor, if you like, when it's Obama, when it's Gordon Brown. Regardless of what you think of him, it's easy to honour him still, isn't it? But what about when it's Hitler or Stalin or Idi Amin, Robert Mugabe, still today? If you're in Zimbabwe now, would you be honouring or dishonouring Mugabe? It's a tough call, isn't it? It's a horrible, horrible thing to have to go through, but that's what we're called to do. I mean, surely, if you think there'd be a get-out clause for people like that, after they've done a certain amount of crimes, there's a get-out clause, we don't have to honour them anymore. There is no get-out clause. We're still called to live honourably honorably, and honour those in power. But okay, that's for in other countries right now. That's what happened back then, but what about us here now in the UK? I mean, I suggest we're pretty much wrapped in cotton wool in this country, aren't we? And for starters, I'd suggest we're in very huge danger of abusing that grace. Thank God for that grace. I'm not asking for persecution, I don't want it. But don't abuse that grace and take that for granted either. Are we so wrapped up in cotton wool, particularly the church in this country, we're so wrapped up in cotton wool that we wince every time someone calls us names? Do you know what I mean? In Vietnam, when I was out there, the church over there told us, despite what they were dealing with at the time, and their problems with the authorities, being arrested and beaten and so on and worse, they said, we pray for you. We pray for you because we feel the church is weak in the UK. We pray for you. God bless them. But they're right. Don't take this grace we have in this country for granted. Don't abuse that grace. Suffering in general is inevitable. It will always be with us until Christ comes again. It's known as futility of creation. That's the term that's used to describe it. When sin entered this world, which was all our fault, God put whole of creation alongside it into futility at the same time. There will always be decay, there will always be suffering in this world until Christ comes again. Look at Haiti. Look at the war in Afghanistan. There will always be wars and famines. Jesus promised us in Matthew 24. He said there will be earthquakes, famines, Nations rising against nation and so on. He told us it will happen. But then, also, Romans chapter 8, verse 21, the earth will be set free from decay. 
It will be. God's word promises it, promises us. We were singing this morning about hope and praying about hope. There is a hope, a guaranteed hope that one day all this will come to an end. God is good and does good. Psalm 119, 68, one of my favourite little verses at the moment. God is good and does good. We have to trust that. And that is our calling as God's people, to not react dishonourably, whether it be to physical suffering or otherwise. We are called to live honourable lives. As recently, there was another repeat on Channel 4 of the uh, documentary. Uh, what was it called? Uh, Where was God in the tsunami? Well, I'd suggest he was right there in the church that were helping render aid at the time, to be honest, as well as other people doing good things as well. But people are always crying out, you know, where's God in Haiti? He's in charge. And I've been following reports on, uh, on the internet over the past couple of weeks that God is very much present in Haiti in the church that are rendering aid. They're doing some fantastic work. I don't want to diss the big organisations, but they're doing greater stuff on the ground. Believe me. You want to hear some stories, come and find me later. But God is there. But when we understand that perspective and the greater scope of things, when we see, see it from God's point of view, it puts a whole new spin on things, a whole new, different perspective. Take another look at the second half of verse 20, just after the question mark. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. So he knows best. We must remember that perspective. You see, our life is a life of faith. It's about seeing what we cannot see, isn't it, through the Spirit. This whole world is focused on what is seen. This whole world is set upon stuff. And we can so easily get sucked into that line of thinking, can't we? Oh, look at me, I've been passed up for career advancement and I fully deserved it more than that bloke and that boss he just doesn't like me because I'm a Christian. It's stuff at the end of the day. And I know it hurts, but it's stuff. We must remember that. We must remember to see what the Holy Spirit sees. We must remember to see that bigger picture that only the Holy Spirit can reveal to us and through his word. On the surface, we might do the right thing and be treated unjustly and think, what is the point? Why do I bother? But no, God is saying here in his word, if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, that is a commendable thing. Just this week, the beginning of this week, I've had a bit of an interesting week to uh, first time I'll start working for you guys. If you don't know already, I'm working now half-time for the church, half-time for the ambulance service as of last Monday. Monday morning I went into work for the ambulance service Within a couple of hours, I got dealt a huge blow. I'm not going to go into details because it's still going on. But colleague and, and myself did what we believe was the right thing a few weeks ago, and now it's backfiring horribly. And we honestly did the right thing, as far as we are concerned. We followed the right channels. We did it the right way, and now it's been flung back at us with a whole sack of trouble behind, potential trouble behind it. It's been reported to different people. We're dealing with it, but. It made me feel physically ill, for starters. And right away, my first two reactions were to hide. Maybe it'll go away. Well, that doesn't deal with the situation, does it? Second one is to retaliate. Point the finger. Blame my crewmate. <laughs> I mean, whatever. But you start getting all these things, these horrible thoughts in your head. How can I get out of this by blaming someone else who doesn't deserve it either? That's not it. That's not it. Remember God's point of view, even on the big things like earthquakes or the small things. Like being, you know, having false accusations or whatever. Jenny and I and Amy have been really, really enjoying watching 3D films at the cinema over the past year. And when you don't wear those glasses, the image is so glaring, it's so bright, and it's just blurry, and it's just wrong. And it's, ah, oh, you just can't, you can't really look at it. 
As soon as you put those glasses on, everything's just stunning. Stunningly clear, beautiful. Go and see Avatar. It's beautiful. It's amazing, <laughs> isn't it? But as soon as you put those glasses on, you see it from a whole different perspective. You see what your physical eyes cannot see. We need to remember God's perspective. And so when it comes to suffering at the hands of false accusation or an unjust boss who passes you over for career advancement, when the council, you're, you're, they're ignoring your pleas to not give planning permission to someone next door that, isn't, that you, do, you believe isn't right, when the laws allow us to be gazumped on our dream house, whatever it is, we honour all. We don't act dishonourably. We can fight back or we can live honourably. doesn't mean you don't stand up for yourself, but you can still do it honourably. And in that we grow. But you can think, yeah, but it's very utopian. But in the real world, you still have to deal with X, Y, Z. It's, it's a nice, nice reading the Bible and be nice to everyone and do the right thing. But in my life, I'm struggling with blank, wherever that is. But in the real world, in the real world, our own precious Jesus knew what it meant to suffer. And he did it well, didn't he? Let's look at the last few verses of this passage. Verse 21. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Christ our example. You see, Christ in his work on the cross did more than just, in inverted commas, die for our sins. The cross has been described as the great jewel of the Christian faith. Just like every jewel has many facets, so does the cross. The, the list is, is quite long, I'm not going to list them all, but Christ's work on the cross, known as the atonement, he is our sacrifice, he is also our ransom, he is also our expiation, which means he deals with our sin, He's also our propitiation, which means he deals with the wrath that we deserve as sinners. He's also our reconciliation. He's our victor. He's our reward, and the list goes on. But he's also our example in his life and in his death. He's our perfect example. And Peter tells us here, in suffering and at the very least in submission to ungodly authorities, look to Christ as your example. That's where you'll find your hope. It's not naivety. It's simply reflecting the character of God as his people, literally. Look to Jesus as our God and reflect his character. It's as simple as that. The Jews, like I've already said, have been waiting hundreds of years for their great, thousands of years for their great Messiah to come. They expected him to lead an army in and just trance the despots and chop their heads off. They missed the point. Yes, Jesus is that, still that king and he will return and he will look like that when he returns, believe me. But the Jews missed the point. Christ came in complete humility to show us how to live and how to die the right way. He was slighted over and over and over again to the point of beating and torture and death. But then he lived again. Hallelujah. All the way through up until that, he lived honourably. He did it the right way. 
Two passages that you can be very familiar with, most of you, but we always need to reread them again. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Turn with me if you want, or hear me read it out. Philippians 2, verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then also Hebrews 12, verses 2 and 3. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Have you ever been rejected? I suggest it's every one of us here. We all experience rejection of some form in this life, haven't we? Have you ever been despised, accused, discriminated against? You've been treated unfairly or abandoned. You've been called names. Have you been bereaved? Jesus was. All of those. And look at how he responded. The trouble is, it's easy for our reaction to then go, yeah, but he was Jesus. It was easy for him, he was God. That's normally my initial reaction. It's easy to say that. Looked in for our example, but yeah, but he was Jesus. It was easy. Note this. He was fully God and fully man. It's known as hypostatic union. I'm throwing lots of words your way. Hypostatic union just means he was fully God and fully man. People over the years have tried to describe what that means. Oh, it's a bit like water and wine mixed together in a glass. Well, no, because that's still half and half. He was 100% God and 100% man together. How that works, I don't know. He's God doesn't matter. It's a mystery. It took the church hundreds of years to even work out how to write it down on paper. <laughs> Seriously, 451 AD, they finally got down to writing. He is fully God and fully man, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same son. That's what they say. But the trouble is there are two dangers to approaching Jesus. Either as a man, he's a great prophet, a great teacher, He's a great historical figure who teaches us how to be nice. That's liberal theology, dangerous theology, whole bucket of wrong. But then the other reaction, which I suggest most of us are tempted to, is to view him as a bit like Superman. He's got his flowing, <coughs> flowing locks and his big white cloak and his big kind of red S across the front. But that's the temptation, because you think, yeah, but he was Jesus. Of course he was able to do all that. He was fully God and fully man. Of course he could. But then if that's the case, ask me this. If he was simply God in some bones and flesh, then why did he sweat blood before his arrest? Why did he need to sleep? He didn't do it to look like he was human. He needed to sleep. Why would an unchanging, eternal God be described in Luke 2 as growing in wisdom and stature? If he's eternal and unchanging, then why did he grow in wisdom and stature? 
who was fully God and fully man. Why would he get hungry? Matthew 22. Why did he get thirsty on the cross? It's because he chose not to lean on his divinity. He didn't give up his divinity. He didn't stop being God and such, but he chose not to lean on his divinity. Two different things. But then if that's the case, so what was his secret? How did he do it? How did he live such an amazing example? If he is not leaning on his divinity, how did he live that life that he lived? The Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit is available to you and I. Exactly the same. All the way through Luke, you can find out evidence for this. The first two chapters of Luke says he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Chapter 3, John declares Jesus would baptise in the Holy Spirit. And in fact, when Jesus himself was baptised, the Holy Spirit descended on him. That's when his ministry kicked off. Luke chapter 4 says he was full of the Holy Spirit and he was led by the Holy Spirit. Chapter 4 again, he began his three-year ministry by reading, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. Chapter 4 again, he returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Do you see? Then came the healings and the raising from the dead and the calmings of the storm casting out of demons. And then Luke chapter 10, verse 21, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. That's what his secret was. And then his arrest and his death that we've all been talking about. And then he was raised again. Romans chapter 8 says he was raised again by the Spirit. The breakthrough for me this week in my situation at work, I went to prayer and fasting with a heavy heart, <laughs> believe me. But while I was there, I was able to pray with my mate Tom Shaw. And during the worship times, the Holy Spirit just released an intense, what on paper would look irrational and illogical, an intense peace and a trust that God is in charge, that he will look after me, that he is good and does good. It was the Holy Spirit. That's what made all the difference. I came away from prayer and fasting very different to when I went. Very different. And that same Holy Spirit that empowered Christ to live such a life of example is available to us. Do you really think his word would tell us to follow in his footsteps and it not be possible? Do you really believe that? Of course not. The Holy Spirit is available and already dwells in you if you are saved, if you're one of Christ's, if you have put him first in your life. You, you've, you've repented and you, decide, you, you say to him, I want to put away my selfish desires. I am a sinner. I want to put you first. If you have genuinely done that, given him lordship of your life, you have the Holy Spirit within you. The same Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Prayer and fasting this week, some of us were singing the song. The same power that conquered the grave lives in me. Lives in me. He's right here, right now. So the trouble is, we can limit ourselves. The reason we don't, don't always experience that is because we say, yeah, but I have a weak spot and I'm prone to that kind of temptation. Straight away, you're limiting yourself. You're accepting that as part of your life. It's a lie. It's a lie. That same Holy Spirit is right here, right now, to help you live the life that Christ lived. Yes, <coughs> yes, we will screw it up. We're still, we are still human. We are still able to sin as such. But the Holy Spirit who helped Christ live that life is available to you, right here, right now. Do you want more? Do you want more? So to end, just focus on this. Living the cross-centred life 
demands that we take regular swipes at pride in our hearts. I've been offended. I've been slighted. I've been hurt. I've been treated unjustly. That personal authority doesn't deserve my honour. I don't agree. The whole world has turned pride into a virtue, not a vice. The only thing virtue needs is not a good feeding, it needs a good kicking. The whole problem got us us here in the first place. The whole world is all about self-help books and rights over responsibility. We're all owed our 15 minutes of fame, all these TV programmes. It's all me, 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 I, I, I. That's not what it's all about. That's not what we as his people are called to do. That's exactly the problem got us in this mess in the first place in this planet. Putting ourselves, our desires, before his. Christ's humility deals a death blow to self. He gave up his own life for you. He suffered in this life, honourably, well, for you. He raised again from the grave to sit at the Father's right hand for you. That's our Jesus. And when you truly believe that, you're determined to give him lordship, self is crucified. Do you see? The cross centre's life demands it, because otherwise it's a false gospel. And so just as Christ exemplified, we are called to sacrifice ourselves daily, hourly, continually. As we turn the other cheek, as we honour those who may not deserve it, we present the gospel in our actions. Not weakness, and it may well, often does look like that to the world. But why should we care? We do, but we shouldn't. Remember it from God's point of view. It's exactly how Christ lived. And as far as I'm concerned, he is the strongest, most forthright, most honourable man this world will ever know. And it is biblically possible to follow in his footsteps. The full revelation of someone's character is, I'd suggest, not when things are going swimmingly, but when they suffer. Hardship, loss, isolation, rejection, treated unfairly and so on. Ill health too. That is when we see a person for who they truly are where their character truly lies. There are some people in this room who have done that well, believe me. But all of us are called to do that. Have you found yourself in a position of grief or of injustice, of pain? Does it bring glory to him? What does it look like? Or if you picture yourself in that position, would it bring glory to him? If there's one thing you take away this morning, then take away this. I know it's from someone else's preach in a week or two, but just quickly, verse uh, chapter 3 of 1 Peter, verse 15. <coughs> just a thought on this verse. Take this one thought away from you, away with you. Chapter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. There's a guy called Jeff Vanderstelt, who's a church planter in America. And he says about that verse, he says, to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in you starts with living a life that demands a gospel explanation. Does your life demand a gospel explanation? I know I've got a lot of work to do still. And I suggest we respond to that. Does your life demand a gospel explanation? I think we just, all of us principally, I think we need to stand and respond to this. We'll sing a song in a minute. But um, 
whatever your station in life, we all have a part to play in living a life that demands a gospel explanation. And I suggest we all stand, if that's okay. If this is particularly provoked something, poked at something in your heart, something you're dealing with, then as we're singing this song, feel free to come forward and I, David, John, will pray with you or your cell leader can pray with you. If not, then stay in your seats and just sing this song. But each of us, I'm sure each of us, there is something we need to recommit to him. If you don't know him, come and speak to us afterwards. But if you don't know him, you can give your life to Christ here and now. He died for you. He rose again for you. Don't walk away from here without making the best decision you can ever make in your life. This is a chance for all of us to be honest before God and recognise the fact that we need to live a life honourably for him. Not for us, for him. But if there's something you want specifically pray, to pray for, then please do come forward. Stepping forward is an open demonstration, an open act of, no, I want to do this. I'm deciding and I'm going to make a public action in doing so. So come forward and we'll pray for you. We'll pray with you. Lord Jesus, we just want to, we want to honour you this morning, Lord God. We realise that it's easy in this life to keep getting sucked into the way the world thinks and living for ourselves, Lord, but we want to live for you. Our reactions to others need to be born out of our reaction to you. And Lord, we want to get that right this morning. So Lord, help us. Help us. Let's sing this song. Blessed be your name. During the song, if you feel it's appropriate, then come forward. We'll pray for you at the end.